Please stand for the reading of the word from Hosea 11. When Israel was a child, I loved him, and out of Egypt I called my son. The more I called them, the more they went from me. They kept sacrificing to the Baals and offering incense to the idols. Yet it was I who taught Ephraim to walk. I took them up in my arms, but they did not know that I had healed them. I led them with cords of human kindness, with bands of love. I was to them like those who lift infants to their cheeks. I bent down to them and fed them. They shall return to the land of Egypt, and Assyria shall be their king, because they have refused to return to me. The sword rages in their cities. It, it consumes their oracle priests and devours because of their schemes. My people are bent on turning away from me. To the Most High they call, but he does not raise them up at all. How can I give you up, Ephraim? How can I hand you over, O Israel? How can I make you like Adma? How can I treat you like Zeboim? My heart recoils within me. My compassion grows warm and tender. I will not execute my fierce anger. I will not destroy Ephraim, for I am God and no mortal, the Holy One in your midst, and I will not come in wrath. They shall go after the Lord who roars like a lion, and when he roars, his children shall come trembling to the west. They shall come trembling like birds from Egypt, and like doves from the land of Assyria, and I will return them to their homes, says the Lord. The word of the Lord. Please be seated. Good morning, everyone. I hope you had a good Thanksgiving. It's good to see you here. It's good to see all of us here together on one service. It feels right to have us together, and I especially want to be grateful for Ryan and Neen coming and joining us from the other side of the planet. Uh, Ryan didn't mention this, but because, because of COVID, he hasn't been back for over two years, and uh, it's good to have him here. During this season of Advent, we are uh, starting up a, a new series called Foretold, and what we're going to do is we're going to look at the prophecy text that we see in, in the books of Matthew and Luke. Um, and and what, I, what I want us to understand is, is, is that when, when Matthew is trying to connect the birth of Jesus to the larger story of Israel, he reaches into the Old Testament and, and pulls some of these stories out for us to understand who Jesus is. And you've read these texts before, you've heard this before, but, but this season of Advent, we're going to look back at what Hosea meant and some of the other prophets as they're speaking about what's coming. It's what they foretold. You see, prophets, they don't, they don't predict the future. They're not fortune tellers or soothsayers. Prophets speak the word of God, and that word creates reality. And in Matthew chapter 2, where our story is kind of begins today, it, it starts with the story of the Magi, these astronomers slash astrologers that live in a distant land, and they see something unusual in the sky, and they know what it means. A king has been born. And so they travel to greet this king with gifts, which is what you do when a new king is born. You offer gifts uh, of blessing. But when they arrive they find something unusual. There, is no, there are no babies in Herod's palace. And so they ask, where, where will the king be born? Oh, Bethlehem. And Herod asks that simple question, would you please, when you find this king, come back and tell me where he is so that I might worship him too? 
And we hear in those words a little bit of untruth. Herod is a dangerous, mad king. And Jesus is not safe. And so those magi go to worship the Messiah and then are warned to go home by another way. And after a while, Herod realizes he's been fooled. He does not like to be duped, and so he issues a decree. Kill them all. All the babies, all the male boys, two and under in Bethlehem, kill them all. But Joseph is warmed in a dream to escape, and he flees to Egypt. And then later, Joseph realizes it's okay to come home, for that king is dead, Herod is dead. And the quote is from the prophet Hosea. Now, if you're understanding the prophet of Hosea, his, his, the overview of his book is, is pretty, um, it's interesting and it's, it's, it's a little, I don't know, PG-13. Um, for most of the book, it's regarding a spouse that's kind of perpetually unfaithful and, and turns to prostitution. It's, it's a metaphor. And, and while the faithful spouse goes out over and over again and finds, uh, finds his spouse and brings her back, and this is particularly striking, this predominant metaphor that exists in Hosea, because of the, the male-centered nature of authority in the ancient Near East. A man would never do something like this. It is abhorrent. It is demeaning. It's shameful and embarrassing. Just this week, uh, my family chat um, had this moment where my brother-in-law was fixing his dishwasher, and he said, "Ha! I got the man card," and, and I thought, "Good for him." And my father-in-law chimed in and said, "Yeah, way to go, man! That's the man card." And I thought to myself, "What exactly is this man card that we're tossing around here? It's acts of manliness. It's things you do to prove that you're masculine." And I thought about my behavior over Thanksgiving break, visiting my in-laws. As I spent time sitting in a chair, knitting a hat for my son. <laughs> and I wondered, do I have this hypothetical man card? Have I given it up and making something cool? You're going to see that hat. It's going to be amazing. Um, <laughs> but even in our culture, there are things that you can't do. It's It's, it's wrong. It's socially too far. And the point of the story is not that God wants to embarrass Hosea. The point of the story is, is none of that. The point of the story is that's how much God loves us. That God doesn't care about standing, doesn't care about uh, decency, doesn't care about all of those things that kind of generates his self-image and self-respect as a God. God will chase you down and buy you back from the pimp that's putting you on the street. But what's fascinating is there's this moment in chapter 11 where the metaphor changes. And the story is no longer about spouses, but parents and children. And it begins, out of Egypt, I have called my son. 
And here this is a reference to Hosea 11, and, and what, what, what Matthew is doing at first feels like a proof text. It's like Matthew went flipping through the concordance because he had to find the words that Jesus is God's son, so he wants to find the place in the Old Testament where God says, my son, and then he finds it, and he says, aha, here it is. Jesus came out of Egypt. Out of Egypt, uh, God calls his son, therefore Jesus is God's son. But done, solved, checkmark, move on. But if that's how you read Scripture, you're going to miss the depth of what Matthew's doing in this moment when he calls back to Hosea chapter 11. It's kind of like at the end of uh, the book of Matthew when Jesus on the cross says, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And in that moment, he's not calling out just to God to say, I feel estranged from God because of the burden of sin, but rather he's singing. On the cross, Jesus is singing. He's, he's pulling back from Psalm chapter 22. Maybe even more than singing, Jesus is praying. And if you were to take the time and go back and realize that's the first line of Psalm chapter 22, and then you realize the totality of the prayer, you, you realize that what Jesus is doing is capsulating the experience of the cross. And the same thing's happening here at the beginning of the story. But Hosea 11 is so much more than just a proof text to prove that Jesus is God's son. Rather, it tells us who God is. What we see in Hosea chapter 11 is what Brueggemann calls the most remarkable oracle in the entire prophetic literature. That's what H.D. Hibley uh, says uh, when we penetrate deeper into the heart and mind of God than anywhere else in the Old Testament. And what we find when we penetrate the deepest part of God's mind is grace. And it begins as a story. It's kind of like one of those senior graduation videos. We play them at the senior banquet here at Highland. I've, I think I've seen probably hundreds of these things because it's been a part of every church that I've ever been a part of at some point or another. You have that video and it begins with pictures as a baby and they're so cute and then pictures as a toddler and they're equally cute and then pictures as an elementary school student and they're very, very cute. And then they skip middle school because everybody has awkward middle school pictures. And then you jump to somewhere in your high school where you've kind of like grown into your adult teeth and your smile doesn't look funny anymore. And then the senior picture where where they look like they're you know, full-grown, ready to face the world. And that's kind of what happens in Hosea chapter 11. If you have your Bible, turn to it. If you have your app, open it up, because I want you to follow along with me. Out of Egypt you were called, and when you were a toddler, I cared for you. Notice what God does. Notice the verbs. God loved, God called, God taught, God took, God healed, God led, God lifted, God bent down, and God led. When Israel was a child, this is beginning in verse 1, I loved him. Out of Egypt I called my son. The more I called him, the more they went from me. They kept sacrificing to the balls and offering incense to idols. Yet it was I who taught Ephraim to walk. I took them up in my arms, but they didn't know that I healed them. I led them with cords of human kindness, with bands of love. I was to them like those who lifted infants to their cheeks. I bent down to them and fed them. Now, remember, this is remarkable, and it, it harkens back to that beautiful time of toddlerhood 
where you teach your children to walk and you wait to hear them talk and your first baby, like you're so excited when it rolls over for the first time. By the third baby, you barely even saw it happen because you're chasing the other two. But, but it tells this story of what it's like to raise a child. Now remember, this is even more remarkable because this is the ancient Near East and this is not the work of what a man does. A man would have nothing to do with a child that's under 11 or 12. But this father loves and loves deeply. Bent down to fade them. Picked them up and held them to their cheek. Led them with cords and human kindness. Taught them the right way to go. Taught them the right way to think. Taught them the right way to love. But did it in grace. And Israel, in response, did not know, refused to learn, determined to run away, and went back to Egypt. Carla Stockton says that Hosea 11 is a passage any parent can relate to. We can hardly wait until our babies walk and talk, then we are horrified at what they say and do. This child who I have provided for her every need, who I have lost sleep over, who I have comforted and cleaned up and coddled and kissed is the same child that will break my heart just as quickly as she will fill it with joy. And then God becomes angry because God knows what will happen. In this oracle in particular, it's not that God is going to, to punish Israel or send them away. It just says, I see what's going on, and I see the direction and the trajectory that you're following, and I know where it's going to lead, and I can't do anything to stop it. And then parents that are a little older than me know exactly how that feels like. And then there's this interesting moment in the poem. It is very rare in the Old Testament. In fact, this is probably one of the few times that it occurs. Because God begins to talk to himself. And in, in, a, in dramatic terms, we would call this a soliloquy. It's a moment in a play where an actor speaks their thoughts uh, and lets the audience overhear. And Shakespeare perfected this, but you see it all over the place. Shakespeare in Hamlet says, To be or not to be, that is the question. Whether it is nobler in the mind to suffer the slings and arrows of outrageous fortune or take arms against the sea of troubles. It allows you to hear what's happening in the actor's mind, in the character's mind. And this is really interesting because gods in the ancient Near East, or even in popular religion today, or in orthodoxy, don't really do this. God doesn't debate himself. God doesn't need to repent, change their mind. And, but it is though as this father, in the middle of a rant of being furious with the choices of their son, knowing the trajectory of what that's going to cause, catches him up short and says to uh, himself, what are you doing? It is though this father comes to himself as the son in the prodigal came to himself. Only now it is the father who comes to self-critical reflection, not the son. And the parent remembers who they are or who they're angry at. It's the son they love. And the parent begins to ask probing questions. How can I? How can I give you up? How can I hand you over? How can I treat you like Adma, that's Sodom? How can I treat you like 
Zeboyim, that's Gomorrah. How can I do that? And I think that insight gives us some reflection about who God is, but more importantly, it also gives us reflection about who are, who we are, because we are made in the Imago Dei. We carry the image of God. You can feel anger, and you can feel betrayed, and you can feel broken, because that's what God felt, but you don't have to stay there. Because the part of you that is the image of God is the part that allows you to feel a little bit of self-reflection. And in that moment, you have the chance not just to act out in anger, but to think about, who am I acting in this moment? And again, it's very easy to draw some straight lines between this text and what it means to be a, to be a parent, but you can do this no matter which way you are. I've, I've told my students over and over again, uh, I'm teaching a, a gospel, uh, the gospels class in, 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 at ACU this semester for the first time. It's a lot of fun. But I've told them over and over, it's something that, that I've said it so many times, they can just end the sentence for me. Uh, sin is not the breaking of the rule, it's the breaking of relationship, right? And when you break the relationship, there are natural consequences that happen to you. Because Israel will choose to ally themselves with Egypt, because Israel will choose to ally themselves to Assyria instead of trusting in God to be their, uh, their, their guide, their, their God, their Lord, there's going to be some consequences that happen to that. But the good news of this text is that sin and even consequences or even the anger of God is not the end. That's not the end of the story. The end of the story is God's grace. I mean, God is complex, but most importantly, God is honest. God is frustrated with a relationship that's gone bad. God is angry at the state they're in, but God is able to reflective and committed to, to a new resolve in grace and forgiveness. That's who God is. That's who God has been from the very beginning. And so rather than punishment, rather than abandonment, God chooses to call his people home. And I love the text. God is the lion that roars. And they come back from their west and they come back from Egypt and they're a little bit afraid. There, there's some trembling there. But the roar of the lion is not terrifying to the children who know. It's the sound of home. And so we return to Joseph and to Mary. They're loading up their old donkey with a few possessions uh, to, in a foreign place. They're planning to go home now that the mad king has passed. But this text is so much more, isn't it, than just a proof to show that Jesus is God's son, proving a, providing the space for a theological check mark so that we continue. This is who God is. You know, in the Old Testament, Egypt is always personified as a place of captivity. It's an ancient superpower, but for, for, the, for the Hebrews, for Israel, it's a place of captivity. 
And God is always doing exodus, not just in the book of Exodus where God brings his people out to give them a land. God is always bringing people out of captivity, out of the captivity of loneliness, out of the captivity to enslavement to different things, or out of the captivity of self-destruction to bring them to a place that we call home. Carla Stockton said, you are welcome in the house of God. No matter how far you've strayed, no matter what you've done, you are like Israel, God's beloved child. God's heart beats for you. God's love is never ending. There is nothing you can do to change that. So come on home. Live with God. You are loved. Because the father that brings, that brought his son out of Egypt didn't just do it for Israel. Didn't just do it for Jesus. He's doing it for us. Christmas season is a lot of things and I love, I love this time of Advent. But maybe most importantly, it's, it's a time where you get a chance to choose. And maybe it's time to come home. Let's stand and sing together. So know this. The end of the story is not your brokenness. The end of the story is not your exile. The end of the story is not the self-destruction. The end of the story is God's grace. The end of the story is God's faithfulness to us. And the hope that we hold deep in our hearts is the God who began the work in Hosea, carried it through in Jesus, raised him from the dead, will pour out his spirit on our lives. And we become the embodiment of grace in this world. So carry hope in your hearts this week, church. Carry it to everyone you meet. You, the end of the story is not the brokenness. The end of the story is the God who calls you home. So it's time to come home. It's time to come home. May you be filled with God's grace. May you be the embodiment of God's love.